you have your Bibles with you, please open up to uh, Deuteronomy 6. We're going to be reading two passages from Deuteronomy 6 and Ephesians 6. We were blessed to hear Peter Smith a few months ago preach from, from Deuteronomy 6. We will be uh, uh, looking at that same passage, but with a uh, perspective and focus on parenting. So in Deuteronomy 6 and Ephesians 6. So you're going to have your fingers in two spots. I'm going to give you a minute to get there, and we'll flip quickly between them. I think we can do it. We're going to start with the Deuteronomy 6 and then flip over to Ephesians 6, look at two key passages on parenting in God's Word. Now, I'm going to say something more about this. You may be here thinking, I don't have kids. It's time to zone out. Please don't do that. You may have children someday. You may know people who have children. There may be children in this church. Okay, I know that there are. Okay. Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 through 9. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God, to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Let's flip over to Ephesians 6. And we'll read verses 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, you've given us so many gifts to steward. Lord, the breath that we breathe, the bodies you've given us, our ears and eyes, time and money, and also our children. Lord, we want to be faithful uh, with this incredible gift, this incredible privilege that you've given us to raise them in a way which glorifies you. Our heart's concern, our prayer is that they would know you and love you. And Lord, this morning as we look at your word, we want to do everything in our power and our ability, depending upon your grace through your Son uh, to create an environment uh, where children uh, flourish in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, of, of your Son. So please, Father, I pray that you would help us to be faithful with the next generation that you've entrusted to us. Give us wisdom as we learn from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the saddest passages in Scripture for me, both as a parent and as a pastor, is in Judges 2. Judges 2.10 says, And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. 
This is an unimaginable tragedy. God had chosen Israel from all the peoples of the earth to bear his name and to bring him glory. Israel was the inheritor of God's covenant with Abraham. God resided among Israel in the tabernacle. But somehow, despite all these blessings, a generation of Israel grew up not knowing the Lord their God. The extent of this tragedy is really only seen when we look back at what the previous generation of Israel had experienced. In Joshua 23 to 24, Joshua, the successor of Moses, now in his old age, uh, Joshua in his old age, gathered Israel together. He reminded them about all God had done for them, how God had given them the land promised to Abraham, how God had been faithful to his promise to drive out the idolatrous nations. Joshua ends by challenging Israel in Joshua 24, 14 to 18. Joshua 24, 14 to 18. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. And put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served which were beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Well, Israel responds well to this challenge to serve only God. Judges 2 picks up the story of what happens after Israel renewed his commitment to worship God. In Judges 2.6, when Joshua had dismissed the people, the sons of Israel went each to his inheritance to possess the land. The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who had seen all the great work of the Lord which he had done for Israel. This, this is an encouraging time in the history of Israel. They served the Lord, the children served the Lord. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers. That whole generation died. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. Did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. How could this be? After Joshua and his peers passed away, there arose another generation after them who didn't know the Lord, nor the work he had done for Israel. The consequences were heartbreaking. We see that in Judges 2, 11 through 13. This is what happens. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed themselves down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger, so they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Asherah. I imagine that Joshua's gener generation, the ones who had heard his challenge to serve the Lord, who had committed, would have been mortified to think of their own children, their grandchildren, bowing down to the gods of Canaan. Before Baal and Ashtoreth, their innocent little boys and girls offering sacrifices and visiting the cultic prostitutes. They would have been sickened to know that their children would choose the empty promises of false gods over the faithfulness of the one true God. How did this happen? How did this generation grow up not knowing the Lord or the work which he had done for Israel? The answer is simple. Israel had failed to obey God's command in Deuteronomy 6, 6-7. through These words which I am commanding you today, shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. They failed to teach God's word to their children. Brothers and sisters, this is the same danger our children face today. And we as a church have a choice to make. Will the next generation know the Lord and the work he has done for us? If we, if we fail 
to teach and train them, our children and grandchildren will certainly become idolaters. Now, every children, and we know this, is born with idolatry in their hearts. The DNA we receive from Adam is idolatrous. Every human will turn away from God. Every human will choose to serve that which will not satisfy. This is, this is what we will all do. From birth, we are suppressors of truth who refuse to give God the love he deserves. In Ephesians 2, God says that our children are by nature objects of wrath. How foolish would we be, how insensitive to our children's plight, to their inherited DNA, their being human, if we don't use the means that God has given to rescue our children, if we don't prayerfully teach them truth, if we don't dependently train them to obey. Now, God has given us neither the responsibility nor the ability to save our children. Now, I'm sure that we as parents, as aunts and uncles, as devoted friends, when we think about the possibility of our children facing judgment, can sympathize with what Paul says in Romans 9 regarding his fellow Jews. In Romans 9, Paul says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in his Holy Spirit, in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Perhaps only when we're thinking about our children do we have that same feeling. I could trade my salvation for theirs. We shudder to think of one of our children one day being cast away from the Lord, but God hasn't given us the responsibility of saving our children. I'm glad because we can't do miracles, right? Salvation is God's miracle to perform. Only he regenerates, only he gives new life. If our children are judged by the Lord, it will be for their sin and not ours. But, Although we're not responsible to save our children, God has given us the privilege and the responsibility of teaching and training them. That is what we are responsible for. This morning, we're going to examine two requirements from God's word for parents. The first is that God requires parents to teach their children. And the second is God requires parents to train their children. And we'll cover both, both of those again. God requires parents to teach their children, and God requires parents to train their children. My prayer today is that every child in our church will grow up knowing the Lord and what he has done for us because we have been faithful to teach and train them. That should be your prayer too. I mean, we can pray for their salvation. That'd be incredible if God saves every one of our kids. Amen. But today I want to pray that we are faithful in the responsibility that God has given all of us in teaching our training. Now, if you're currently not raising children, either because you're not married or because your children have already grown, I want to encourage you that this message is still for you, so don't check out. At the end of today's message, I'm going to give some ideas how we can all participate, regardless of our age or our marital status. But for now, if you're in a place where you don't have kids, and these are really great questions for all of us, here's some things that, to ask yourself as we launch into what God's Word says to parents. Am I living in a way that exalts God as He is or that distracts from who He is? Am I living in a way that exalts God as he is or that distracts from who he is? Am I helping parents in the responsibility to teach their children? Am I complimenting parents' efforts to exalt God? Or am I minimizing God before children? Am I making him smaller than he is? Am I really effectively undermining parents' efforts to show the greatness of God? 
Am I making Christ compelling for children to follow, or am I making him easy to dismiss? It's possible that we can, in our confession of Christ, in the way that we live, really uh, paint a picture of Jesus as irrelevant, impotent, and forgettable. That's a challenge to all of us, whether we have kids or not. Well, God has given parents uh, many responsibilities. Today, we're going to focus on two, and that's teaching and training. So let's look at the first one. God requires parents to teach their children, and we'll focus in, in Deuteronomy 6 for this. In Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 3, Moses challenged the people of Israel their, that their enjoyment of the promised land was dependent upon their obedience to God's law. And, and, and we've just seen that. What follows in verses 4 through 9 became one of the most often quoted portions of the Old Testament. In verse 4, Moses exalts God in an apparently simple but theologically rich statement. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. By him being one, he's, he's unique, he's exclusively God, he is the one God, Yahweh alone is God. He exclusively has self-existence, he exclusively has unlimited power, unlimited knowledge, he alone is creator and alone can redeem. He alone defines what righteousness and goodness are, and he alone judges. As one commentator said, when God spoke, there was no one to contradict. There's still not. When God promised, there was no one to revoke that promise. When God warned, there was no other to provide refuge from that warning. End quote. All humans will have to give account to the only God as he is. Not as we wish him to be, not as we imagine him to be. Our conjectures about God, our speculation, do not define him. He alone is God. He is who he is. Then again in Deuteronomy 6, 5, Five, with beauty and simplicity, Moses tells us what response the only God requires from us. So he's the one God. So what response does he require from us? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. We're called to love God with all our heart, the center of our thoughts, our intellect, our emotions. With all of our soul, the center of our ability to want and choose that driving portion of us, our might. God made us who we are. He gave us the faculties that we have so that we would engage in the most satisfying obligation we have to love him exclusively with all our being, to love him with all we are, is to have no other gods before us, to have nothing that competes in our affections for him, to get rid of everything else that distracts and pursue hard after him. Now, God's requirements here are stringent, right? He will not be satisfied by 90% of our love. He requires 100% of our affection. And yet, because we're sinners, we're incapable of giving that devotion to Him, right? God requires from your children 100% of their love as well. Their love should not be wasted on toys and treats and television. That is a waste of what they were created for. Now, this is not because God is demanding and cruel that He requires 100% of our love. Loving him is why he created our children. It's why they took their first breath. They enter into life to love him. The, this disparity between the love that we give God and the love that he requires from us is why we need a savior. Because Christ loved God with that perfect devotion, he could die to pay the penalty of our misplaced, misdirected, and misspent affection. 
We can be forgiven of loving ourselves more than him. We must come humbly to God, mourning over our spiritual adultery, over our wasted love, and look to him alone to transform our affections, to give us a heart of love for him. And that is what the gospel is, that he makes us lovers of him alone. Our job as parents is to hold our children to this highest standard of 100% love for God's glory and for their good. They, too, must love God with all their heart, soul, and mind. Every act of disobedience is evidence that they love themselves more than their creator. Their inability to love God the way that he requires is why your children need a miracle, right? It's why our children need a miracle. Our children don't simply need to pray a prayer prayer of salvation, or to affirm some spiritual truths, to get baptized. Our children need to have their dead souls quickened by God, right? This is why we pray. We can't do that. They need God to open their eyes so that they're appalled by their idolatry and become desperate for salvation. God is not satisfied with our children's outward conformity. He wants their unparalleled and uncompromising devotion, just like he wants ours. God's requirement to love him is an open door for the gospel of God's grace. God sent his son to take the punishment for sin and has exalted his son so that he can give us new life. A life with God in the center of our affections. A life where we love him with all our heart and soul and mind. This is good news for our children. So whether you are a parent or not, every one of us are the children in your life seeing you love the Lord with this kind of consuming passion. The children in your life seeing you love the Lord with this kind of consuming passion. Do they know from your affections, and not just from your theology, that there is only one God? Or do they see many gods on the altar of your lives? Gods of fitness, success, security, comfort, pleasure. Has the power of Christ transformed your affections in such a way that your life is a theology that children can read? Have you been so transformed that your life is a theology that children can read? God saves us, saves us so he'll be glorified in our affections. We'll spend eternity loving him alone with all our hearts. With the children in your life, guess from your conversations, your entertainment, your hobbies, your relationships, that the one eternal God has all of your affections. If not, you're not portraying to them the one true God. You're portraying to them something else than that God. Even if you are doctrinally a monotheist, believing in one God, you're a practicing polytheist, believing in many gods. With your words, you say one God. But with your time and budget, you're saying, come, child, you can worship at the foot of all of them. Brothers and sisters, this can't be. Our God deserves better. Our children need better. If we casually and repeatedly worship at the temple of false gods, the children in our lives will only naturally and also willingly follow. This is true for us as parents. This is true for us if you have any children in your life watching you. This is true for us as roots workers. This is true for all of us. Are we showing them the one true God? In verse 6, Moses continues, These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. 
There's a connection between loving God completely and the place that His Word has in our hearts, both in our thought life and our affections. We'll not love God the way that He requires without meditating on His truth. It's not enough to hear God's Word weekly. I mean, once a week. Well, that's weekly would be once a week. It must be the object of intentional, repeated reflection. God's word has to be internalized by us. Our hearts are quick to internalize so many things, what we overhear someone say about us. We're really good at internalizing that. Maybe you're thinking about making a purchase and the pros and cons of whether to buy a, a hybrid. We're good at internalizing that kind of thing. Or who the Lakers will direct. We're good at internalizing that kind of stuff. But Moses says, these words shall be on your heart. You're responsible to keep them there. We must not be passive about the incorporation of God's word into our hearts. God is not satisfied with our passive consumption of his word. If his word is not on your heart, God will not be in your heart. If his word is not on your heart, God will not be in your heart. In verse 7, Moses transitions naturally, really, to our responsibility to the next generation. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. If you're loving God with your heart, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, if you are keeping his words on your heart, those words are going to naturally overflow to your children. The children in our lives will know what's important to us. Don't they all know which team we root for? Don't they all know where our favorite place to get fast food is? What's important to us, just, net, our, just our kids just get it. It's obvious to them. Now, that's true of God's word. If it's important to us, our kids are going to know that. But Moses leaves nothing to chance here. Israel was commanded to teach God's word diligently to their children. The word teach refers to the repetition of God's word until it's internalized, until it's written onto their hearts. The picture is like carving of initials on a tree. You just can't do that once, right? you got to stand there and go again and again and again and again. And that's this idea of, of this diligent impartation of truth. Israel is called to be intentional in instructing their children. While obedience to this command, no doubt, requires times of intentional instruction, Talking about God's word was to be continuous. It was whether in your, in, in your house or you're doing errands, whether lying down for bed or rising up for a new day, whether you're in your minivan or at lunch. The reality of God and his requirements are to be weaved into all our conversation with our children, morning or evening at home or driving. For father, mother, sons and daughters, Discussing God's word is to be the center of life, not a hoop to jump through at dinner time or a box to be checked off before bedtime, uh, which if you've seen your, your, the, the, the uh, excavator's handbooks uh, that your kids are bringing home, if not, you'll, you'll hear more about that. You should have seen them. Uh, there are boxes to be checked off. There's nothing wrong with boxes to be checked off. But it's not just about checking off boxes, though, right? Parents, you're letting yourself off the hook. If you can reduce this requirement here as something that you can complete, this is not simply we went to church, we memorized the passage, we had a family time. Those are all great things. The point of this passage is that if you're a parent, you're called to be a full-time instructor of God's word. All of life is our classroom. 
And there's no spring break. There's no recess. There's no summer break. This is nonstop teaching time. Now, Moses knows that we're, that we're forgetful and that we'll let this responsibility slip in life's busyness. So in verses 8 through 9, he encourages us to remember. So do whatever it takes to make sure this instruction happens. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. Put a little box on your forehead if you need to. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Look around the walls of your house, and where's their scripture? Now, I don't think that these commands need to be taken in a literal way. We don't actually need to uh, uh, put things on our foreheads. The point is that we can't live apart from God's word, but Moses knows that that's going to be natural for us. So do whatever it takes. Put up signs. It doesn't matter. Get God's word into the visual range of your family, into the mental range. Make it your screensavers. Just do whatever it takes so that you see God's word a lot. And that's just the reminder. That's not even the point. Like, like the, the, the uh, Israelites made that the point by the time of Jesus. That's not the point. The point is do whatever it takes so that you don't forget God's word. God's word has to be passed on to the next generation. His word is to be the substance of life. Not everything you talk about, of course, right? just present in everything you talk about. It's like a seasoning that's tasted in every bite. When you add lime to that dish and every bite, it has that freshness to it. That's what God's word is to be. It, it, it sweetens everything. It infuses it. Over time, a child should come to expect you to link every aspect of life back to his word. Because his word has something to say about all of life. God's word teaches us that an apple is not just an apple, right? That apple is not just an apple. That apple is God's apple. That apple was created by God. That apple was given to fallen people. That apple is something that fallen people will fight over for some reason. That apple, the only way we can worship God because of that apple is because of his son. That's what an apple is, right? God's word says a lot about that apple. And that's just an apple. That's not even when our kids fight. So take meditating on God's word seriously. If you, one, meditate on God's word, and two, spend time with your kids, you will talk about God's word with your kids. You will do it. It's just going to be the overflow. Get God's word in your hearts, and the overflow of it is that you will talk about it with your kids. Especially if you turn off the radio. You know, there's, there's some silence. You're talking. You're trying to get your kids to, to, to talk. Whatever they're talking about, if you've been meditating on God's Word, it's going to come into that conversation with them. But if you're not meditating on God's Word, the only time you will talk about Scripture with your children may be when you discipline them. And our God is much too great for that to be the only time you talk to your kids about Him. We're never apart from God. His commands influence how we think about everything, how we respond to everything, how we treat everyone. Our children need that instruction. They need to be taught how God and his word relates to all of life. They need to have the reality molded by God's word for an apple to be God's apple, for people to have eternal souls, for Christ to be better than everything, for the church to be bought with the priceless blood of Christ, for everything that's true to be modeled by, by how you live, 
and then what you teach about what God's Word says about it. Now, we could talk for hours about how we can instruct our children, but honestly, there's a lot of age ranges that are represented here, and so I only have one fail-proof recommendation to make to every parent here. Of course, this applies to the rest of us. Make your life's priority to obey, Deuteronomy 6, 5 through 6. Okay? Make your life's priority to obey, Deuteronomy 6, 5 through 6. And this is true if you ever plan on having kids. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. I'm convinced that you will teach your children diligently if you are loving God diligently. If God's words are written on your heart, they will come out of your mouth. As Jesus says in Matthew 15, 18, But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. The natural overflow of our hearts is our speech. If your overflow is not God's word, then it is not in your hearts as it should be. And that's what we're, we're going to see from a second hour and equipping hour. Just how much the gospel is so part of Paul's whole worldview that when he prayed, it just influenced everything. It was out of his heart and it came out, it was in his heart, it came out of his mouth. I am very thankful for what's going on in children's ministry right now. But the purpose of children's ministry is to complement the overflow of God's word through your mouths, out of your hearts. It's just a compliment. You provide the healthy meals during the week. Children's ministry on Sunday is just a tasty, nutritious snack. It's just, it's just a nice compliment to everything you're feeding them out of the week, out of the storehouses of your heart as it's filled with God's word. If, you're not, if your children are not hearing God's word coming from your lips daily in the ongoing areas of life, you are not fulfilling your God-given responsibility as parents. Their malnourishment is your fault. Now, the answer is not just to set up a family t Bible time. Awesome, though, right? We, we would encourage you to, to do that. You could talk to the elders, care group leaders about having some good ideas about that. As a dad, I'm eager to keep learning about teaching my daughters. It's weird. The kids are different from one another. Who would have thought? And they keep changing. I don't know if you've noticed that. You know, what works when they're three does not work as well when they're seven. Um, so we're going to keep changing. But honestly, the teaching I do during, during our family Bible time at night is pointless if I'm not striving to love God with all my heart, if his word is not in my heart. I won't say it's it's absolutely, absolutely pointless, but it's not as meaningful as it could be, right? It's just scraps as compared to a feast. I think, I think that sometimes we can deceive ourselves, that we can fulfill this command to teach our kids and yet live without God being our chief love. This kind of love requires us to do what Israel was so well so seldom willing to do we saw the generation the generation with joshua do it but those after them didn't we need to get rid of our idols you know there's a uh, um, author named thomas chalmers who wrote about the expulsive power of a religious affection okay? expulsive power something that expels something away of a religious affection the more that we love god the more we will expel other loves we have to get rid of the idols in our hearts, and the way that we do that is by going hard after God. 
if we don't get rid of the idols in our heart, when there's competition on the throne of our heart, our influence to our kids is going to be muted. Do, 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 do any of you remember watching Peanuts? You know, it's, it's kind of funny. We went to Nosbury Farm recently, and there's Peanuts and Snoopy. I don't know that kids anymore know about Snoopy and Peanuts. But you guys remember how uh, the adults in Peanuts talk, right? Wah, 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 wah. You never hear a word that they say. That's the danger that we face if we are letting idols rot in our hearts. We are muting everything we're saying to our kids. We can pass on a moral system to our kids without loving God. We can pass on a work ethic without loving God. We can pass on gospel facts without loving God. But we can't pass on a transforming faith if that faith has not transformed our affections. So for the sake of our little children, guard yourselves from idols. The best place to start is by getting God's word into your heart. Take even this Deuteronomy 6. Listen to Peter Smith's message again. Take Deuteronomy 6, 5 through 6 and memorize it. Get any portion of God's word into your heart. Start meditating on it. And then figure out how to get that portion of God's word into their hearts. If you have a passionate love for God, a God whom you love so much you can't stop telling your children about him, you're going to work hard to make God's word engaging. I think that the how-to is going to happen. Because you're like, I love this Lord so much, and I want my child to love him. I've got to get it from me to them, and you're going to work hard at it. You're not going to be okay while they sit bored, kind of staring at you. You're going to work hard. You're going to ask others questions. But this command to teach your children can only be satisfied when you first find your satisfaction in God alone. We see in Deuteronomy 6 that God requires us to teach our children. We also see in Ephesians 6 that God requires parents to train their children. God requires us to teach our children. God also requires parents to train their children. Uh, Lou, Lou Priolo quotes from a classic work, Hints on Child Training, on the difference between teaching and training. It has been said that the essence of teaching is causing another to know. It may similarly be said that the essence of training is causing another to do. Teaching gives knowledge, training gives skills. Teaching fills the minds, training shapes the habits. Teaching brings to the child that which he did not have before. Training enables a child to make use of that which is already in his, in his possession, end quote. It's not enough for us to teach our children. We also have to train them. In Ephesians 6, 4, and you can go ahead and turn that to Ephesians 6 passage, Paul instructs the church at Ephesus about training. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Paul's instruction to the Ephesian fathers was one among many ways Paul instructed the Ephesians to walk worthy of their gospel calling. More specifically, this command for fathers to train their children was part of Paul's instruction for the saints to live a spirit-filled life. So just give a little context there in Ephesians 5.18. In verse 21, Paul describes the spirit-filled uh, uh, life as a life controlled by God's spirit as characterized by being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Chapter 6, 1 through 4, Paul calls children to be subject or to submit to their parents. But he also tells fathers how they should use their authority that God has given them to nourish their their, their children. And this instruction here is, is primarily to fathers as to heads of the house. It goes uh, to, to, to other heads of the house as well if there's not a father in, in, in the home. And of course, a lot of this will naturally apply to moms as well. So let's read uh, chapter Ephesians 6, 1 through 3. 
means I should turn there too. I was there at one point. Ephesians 6, 1 through 3. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. The children are commanded to obey their parents because it's right. Paul reinforces this by, by quoting one of, one, of the, one of the Ten Commandments here. He motivates children to obey their parents by referencing the, the original promise. It's the first commandment with a promise. It may be well with you. It may live long on the earth. God promised the people of Israel, if they honor the parents, they would enjoy long life in the promised land. Now, that promise was made to the people of Israel. Paul sees that there's a principle that transfers to children in God's church. God blesses children who honor their parents. And that's what we want for them, right? We want them to have blessing. While Paul clearly emphasized the children's responsibility to honor their parents, he commands parents, and particularly fathers, to train them to obey. So although both parents are to, are, are, are to train, verse 4, Paul specifically instructing fathers as, a, as the heads of the home. And we have that responsibility for taking the lead in training our children. I think that that's essential. As fathers, as heads of the home, we have the responsibility of taking the lead in training our children. Not just teaching them, but training them. Paul begins by telling fathers what not to do in verse 4. Do not provoke your children to anger. Fathers must avoid treating their children in ways that would lead to their resentment, that would lead to their hostility. Fathers can fall into this trap by abusing the authority that God has given them. We see a very similar verse in Colossians 3.21. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Now, the word translated exasperate in Colossians has the idea of backing someone in a corner where they're more likely to fight. It's what we do when we exasperate. We're treating them in such a way that they kind of feel that, they backed up, that they're backed up and kind of like they have to fight for their own honor, kind of. The effect of provoking our children is seen in Colossians 3.21. They'll lose heart. As children are provoked by their parents, they lose heart and give up hope of pleasing them. Fathers... God did not waste words of scripture here, right? You have to be concerned about provoking your children, about leaving them feeling like they have to fight against you to protect themselves. When they fight against you, they are more likely to fight against the God you profess. Apart from Christ, your nature as an unredeemed person, now you are in Christ, you're a new creature, but who you were before is either to abdicate your authority or to abuse your authority. As dads, we must learn to use our authority in a way that makes it easier for our children to honor their father and mother, makes it easier for them to honor us, in a way that our words and actions are a blessing to them. As we repeat God's commands for them to honor us, we must not line their path with traps and tripwire and landmines that provoke them. We provoke our children when we're inconsistent in discipline when we kind of thickly apply consequences when it's, when it's convenient for us. We provoke our children when we lash out at our children because we're personally offended by their behavior. As if our disappointment was what matters most at the moment. How could you? How dare you? We provoke our children when our expectations are fluid and unpredictable. We provoke our children when we show favoritism toward one child over another. We provoke our children when we only speak critical, fault-finding words and fail to build them up. We provoke our children when we humiliate them and publicly expose their flaws. We provoke our children when we don't trust them, when we micromanage their efforts, when we minimize their successes. 
we provoke our children and we smother them. We don't let them grow up. We provoke our children when we push them beyond what's reasonable, when we disapprove, when they don't measure up to our standards instead of God's, when we're selfish and we tell them not to be selfish, when we hold them to a higher standard than we hold to ourselves, when, with we, when we withhold affection that they crave from us. And of course, we provoke them if we were to ever physically or verbally abuse them. It's difficult to honor provoking parents. When we provoke them, we're really sabotaging they're leading a blessed life, right? The Lord blesses those who honor their parents, and when we provoke them, we're making that hard to do. So instead of pushing our kids to a breaking point, fathers are to bring them up in the dis- discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now notice the alternative to provoking is not to have low expectations, not to become kind of a permissive, passive pushover, not to just coast, Instead, we're to embrace the task that God has given us, to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, the word for bringing up means to nourish. We often don't think of training as nourishing, but that's what it is. Nourishing is creating an ideal environment for growth. It's a greenhouse for godliness to flourish. Once again, we know that we can only bring, that only God can bring new children to life. We can't do that. But our responsibility is to plan and prep for future growth. We do this by nourishing them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, the discipline and instruction must be distinctly Christian. It must be of the Lord. Now, other parenting philosophies may have some wisdom, but we are not called to train in the discipline of psychologists. We are not called to train up our children in the instruction of mommy blogs. Christ must be the center of our discipline and instruction. Christ is the creator who holds them together. Christ is the reason our children must obey because he is king. Christ is the source of our authority to train them. Christ is the only one whom they can look to for forgiveness. Christ is the only one who can free them from slavery to sin. Christ alone must be both the means and the ends of our training and instruction. It is all about Christ. It is training and discipline of the Lord. I mean, discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, the first word discipline here is often translated as either discipline or training. So training or, or discipline. The word has the idea of using consequences when necessary to, to accomplish the goal of training. It's training that involves discipline. It's why bo- both of those words are used in translating. The goal of training is ultimately conformity to Christ. It is to be like Christ. Now, we know that no child will become like Christ until Christ has canceled sin's reign over their heart. We're still responsible for the behavior of our children. Training is you're helping a child practice doing the right thing so many times that eventually it becomes a habit for them. Doing the right thing becomes a habit. It's walking them through the actions of obedience, step by step, until the right response becomes habit. Because children are born selfish, as we know, they'll quickly develop selfish habits. No training required. Refusing to play with younger siblings, not Uh, something you need to train. Lashing out when a toy is not given, not something we need to train. Saying mine, not something we need to to train. As as Lou Priello says, your job as parents is to train your children to develop godly habits. Instead of only reacting when sinful habits have been been cemented, plan ahead for what your child will need to be trained in next. What's coming up next in your child's training? Pick appropriate passages of Scripture and memorize those. 
Require your children to memorize them, but you memorize them too so you can use them. Training of the Lord must include telling your children what the Lord requires of them. Train your children by discussing that passage with them, including not only at the moment where kind of like there's a disobedience issue. So dads, take your kids out for donuts and brainstorm with them ways they can honor their mom. Or ways they can serve their younger brothers or sisters. Be active in training, not just reactive. Don't just pull out that scripture when your kids have failed to honor mom. Be proactive in your training. Use Proverbs the way that, that, that King Solomon did. I've started this with my daughters. It's so good. Just start reading through some and stop at one that really applies. You're going to find lots there. Use Proverbs like Solomon did to instruct his son to fear God, to obey his parents, to choose companions well, to control his lust, to watch his words, to work hard, to manage his money, to love God, to love his neighbors. Proverbs is full of that kind of proactive training. Now, training requires us to help our children learn what habits God requires us. But it also requires us to faithfully apply negative consequences. Now remember, Paul's word for training here is built in the idea of consequences. Scripture is very clear that God approves of spanking even if our culture does not. Now there are ways of spanking that God does not approve of. He does not approve of vindictive, angry, uncontrolled spanking. The kind of spanking that occurs when we've been pushed over the edge. Neither does God approve, of course, of cruel, brutal, injuring spanking. Now, many of you maybe have memories of being sinfully spanked. God's word does not call you to angry, selfish spanking. In contrast, godly spanking is dying to self-spanking. Godly spanking is dying to self. It's sacrificial. It's for their good. It's never about retaliation. Now listen to what some of the scripture says about spanking. Proverbs 13, 24. He withholds his rod, hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Verse is pretty clear. If you don't spank your kids, what do you do? You hate them. Proverbs 13, 24. Proverbs 19, 18. Discipline your son while there is hope and do not desire his death. I know we don't desire that for our kids. Proverbs 22, 15. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. Something to be pretty easy to get an amen out of. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. It's how we get foolishness out of the child. Proverbs 23, 13 to 14. Do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you strike him with a rod, he will not die. You will strike him with a rod and rescue his soul from Sheol. We know that this is not a clear promise. If you spank your kids, that they will be saved. But there is a principle here that God uses the consequences of spanking to soften their hearts to the gospel and their need for it. If you think spanking your children is unwise, I challenge you to examine these verses. In fact, I'm going to read through them again real quickly. Proverbs 13, 24. Proverbs 19, 18. 22, 15. 23, 13 to 14. If you think spanking your child is unwise, I challenge you to examine these verses and evaluate whether you've turned away from God's wisdom and exalted your own. Now, no one would disagree that there's much wisdom needed in spanking. I'd strongly encourage you to read, to read uh, Lou Priolo's chapter 
on the rod in uh, teaching them diligently. It's a cool book. Okay, it's it's really a great book. Uh, he asks challenging questions about the way we teach our kids about spanking, about how we communicate them with them before, during, and after spanking, how we use scripture with them, whether uh, and whether we point them to the gospel, about how we can help them understand the sin is against God, how we can even help them understand that it's sin if we don't spank them. Spanking is a tool that God has given us to curb sinful patterns and train God-pleasing behavior. We have to use the tools that God has given us. We have to train our kids. So that's in, in, in teaching them diligently. I know what I just described there is not how some of you were spanked. Okay? But spanking can be redeemed. As we look back at Ephesians 6, 4, fathers are called to bring up their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, I wouldn't make too hard of a distinction here between discipline uh, uh, and instruction. I think there's probably an increased uh, focus on, on verbal correction as part of instruction. It's applying the truth of God's word to a, to a situation. It's appealing based on the truth of God's word to change in a way that would please God. It includes that reasoning and pleading and warning. You can see that an older child gets, the more instruction they can receive. And maybe instruction comes after uh, training here, because the more we uh, successfully train our kids when they are young, young, the more instruction they are going to receive later. The more freedom we have to instruct them after we've trained them. A child who's not been trained well won't receive instruction. The elementary years... You know, that, 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 page, that, that, that space between first grade and, and, and junior high are really good times for instruction. We have to be careful as parents. I know many of us have toddlers here. You can do a lot of good training at, at, at the toddler stage. Many kids during that stage realize disobedience is unwise. Life is much better if I obey. I don't want to get spanked. Let training have a good uh, benefit by instructing heavily during those grade school years. That is instruction time. Do not coast until junior high. It may be tempting to coast until junior high because things are going well. That is key instruction time. So parents, the call to train our children is clear. We must not let their sin natures run wild. But remember that biblical training and instruction is of the Lord. The goal of training is not just self-controlled, polite, hard-working, moral children. You can cultivate character without the Lord. But only his people can train and instruct of the Lord. The ultimate object of our training instruction is the salvation of our kids. Every God-given command is an opportunity to proclaim that we can only please him through Jesus Christ alone. It has to be of the Lord. So, parents, if you're in the process of raising kids now, my challenge to you is to commit yourself to teach and train your children. God is not going to hold us responsible for our kids' salvation, but he will hold us responsible for our obedience to his commands. Men, take the lead in reading some good books on parenting. I've, I, I was blessed by, by talking uh, to a man in the church who's doing this, who has done this. Take the lead in reading some good books on parenting. There's some listed on the bottom of, uh, of your note page. If you've already read those, we can find you others. Initiate conversations with your wives about the things that are going on at home and get input. Oh, oh, there or not there? Okay. Well, I can send out a, a, a email later. Uh, uh, so stay ahead uh, in planning of what your children need to be taught next. So talk, talk to your wives. Talk about how things are going at home. Don't just be reactive. Plan ahead. 
Pray urgently for the salvation of your children, both in and out of their hearing. Let them hear how you're praying for them to be saved. And please, invite godly counsel into your home from those who are further ahead as parents. Invite an older couple over for dinner. Pepper them with questions about teaching and training. Ask them for input about what they see you as a couple could do better. I can think of a few couples in our church now who are going to get barraged for invites to come over, give me feedback on how I'm doing as a parent. Now, of course, the better that they know you, the more that they've seen your relationship with your kids, the more help that they're going to be. Men, be cautious of allowing your family schedule to be so full of so many activities that you don't have time to teach and train your children. Now, not that you can't do them while you're doing that. You know, that's the point of Deuteronomy 6, but be guarded with your time. Men, when you're at home, be the one to spank your children. When you're at home, be the one to spank your children. Hebrews 12 says, For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Wives, I'm going to encourage you to do something that you're eager to do already. Support your husband as he grows to be teaching and training. Pray for him that he would fulfill his role and encourage him as you see him taking steps to do so. He's going to, stay, he's going to make missteps as he tries to understand what, you're, uh, what you see all day long with the kids. Be patient, helping him understand. But I'd also like you to, to encourage you, while your children are young, you have a tremendous opportunity to nourish your children. So much of what you do under your husband's leadership is caring for that greenhouse where they're going to be nourished in godliness. Don't be deceived by Instagram that you have to do everything perfectly. I know that there's incredible pressure on women to make beautiful parties and all this nonsense. I like parties, but if you are loving the Lord, if you're supporting your husband, if you're teaching and training your kids, you are spending your days doing what is eternally valuable. Don't get messed up by what the world says is important. Your house is a mission field. You are going to share the gospel more times than probably most missionaries and pastors ever because you get to discipline your kids again and again. <laughs> See, there is a positive side. Uh, in these years, while, while your time is short with them, take your role as teacher and trainer earnestly. Don't get sidetracked. Don't listen to what the world tells you success is. Memorize scriptures with your kids. Discipline them consistently. Don't grow weary in doing good. I know it's exhausting. I'm thankful for my wife and for all the wives who do that faithfully. And moms, plead with the Lord for the salvation of your kids. Now, to mom and dads, we know we're going to need a lot of grace. We know we're going to fail. Don't let past failures keep you from obedience. Get forgiveness. Let your kids see you getting forgiveness from God. Keep committing again and again. And now, I have an unplanned breakaway here, okay? It, it, it is a burden to my heart. And I have been guilty of it. Probably all of us have been guilty of it. We are doing something wrong on Sunday morning. We cannot bring our kids in week after week during the scripture reading and during songs. We need to be here because how are our children going to believe that we value God's word if we're not here for the reading of God's word? How are we going to convince our children that God should be exalted? And this is true for all of us. I don't care if we have kids or not. They need to be, our kids need to be here to see the whole body worshiping God because he's glorious, right? 
That is the God that we serve. He deserves our praise. Our little ones who are here in this room with us cannot see us coming in that door late week after week. It's not a good picture of God. Why should they follow that God? If he doesn't deserve us being here on time, now I'm going off script here, okay? So I'm sorry if I'm stepping on toes. I'm guilty too. I've done it. You've done it. Let's not do it. Okay, I have to tell you, many of our visitors are often here on time while we wander in. Not cool. Does not exalt God. Okay, back to the script. To the rest of the church. So I'm going to encourage you quickly here. Obey, uh, uh, obey, yeah, obey too. But help parents. Help parents bear the weight of what they're doing. Support them. Don't close your eyes to the little ones of our church. We know that their condition is desperate. Without God's grace, we know that they're going to become idolaters. Pray for the parents of this church. All of us need to do that. Weekly, pray for the parents. We must pray for every family we know, that moms and dads will love God with all their heart, soul, and strength, that God's word would be on their hearts. As a children, help support marriages. I mean, as a church, help support marriages by coming alongside husbands and wives and doing all we can to ensure that these exhausting years, and they are exhausting, that marriages stay healthy. So something you can do, try not to say this in a self-interested way, you don't have to do this for us. Offer to babysit. If you don't have kids, offer to babysit so that parents say, parents, I want you to plan how you can teach and train your kids better. Here, I'm going to watch the kids so you guys can go out, get dinner, and plan how to train your kids. Now, just don't do that because you think someone's not doing a good job. That would uh, uh, maybe still be a blessing. I don't know. Uh, Take turns in your care group watching and teaching the little ones so that parents can be refreshed by God's word. Help parents by serving in pebbles and rock ministry, ensuring that parents can attentively listen to the preaching of God's word. Serve in roots so that the teens of our church can see other adults radically loving the Lord. And don't overlook the power of that, all of your example. Whether you have kids or not, as you love the kids of the church, come in, get to know their names. Know all the names of the kids of the church. Let them see you go all out for God's glory. Let them see your love for the saints. Let them see you sacrifice for God's kingdom. If we're faithful, if we're unfaithful in our attendance, you are devaluing Christ and his people in front of the kids of this church, right? If you just say, I just can't make it, you are telling the kids of our church who look up to you, who love you, who look forward to seeing you, especially when you say their names, you know, when you know them, oh, well, why wasn't Bob there? Oh, well, uh, he had uh, this. We're making excuses why, why, why people aren't here. So show the kids how glorious our God is by being here. Uh, so parents who are a little bit further, I, I, I am behind, I'm sorry. Parents who are a little bit further, graciously, prayerfully speak into our lives. When you see my wife and I are blowing it, talk to us. Especially if you see a pattern come into our lives. If you're further along as a parent, we need your help. We need help. Right, parents? Parents of young kids, we need the help of others. Where were the men in Eli's life? Where were the men in David's life who challenged the obvious deficiencies in their parenting? I hope there was people knocking on their door saying, Eli, what are you doing? 
David, do you, are you paying attention to your house? Parents of teens, of adults, don't let us do that. Don't let us be Eli and David's. Now, I began with one of the most tragic verses in God's Word in Judges 2.10. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. But as tragic as that verse is, perhaps even more tragic is what that verse doesn't say. The previous generation served the Lord, and they still failed to raise children who knew the Lord and what he had done. Now, maybe you think, well, maybe they just weren't saved. No, they didn't know what he had done. They didn't teach them. May we not be people who are busy coming to church, busy serving in ministries, busy going to care groups, busy providing for our families, and raise children who don't know what the Lord has done for us. They should love our testimonies, right? They should love our testimonies. They should love hearing about how God saved us. They should love, oh, I love having you all over for dinner asking your testimony because that's beautiful for my kids to hear is how God saved you. We have to tell what God has done for us. By God's grace, we must not let happen at Cornerstone Bible Church what happened in Israel. There must not be a generation after us who didn't know the Lord or the work which he had done for us. Let's pray. And we're going to pray, but I think worship team will just skip that final song. Sorry. Thank you for your preparation. Uh, Lord God, we are very, very, very needy. Uh, we are needy as a church. Uh, we have this uh, uh, responsibility we've been entrusted with. And we know parents are the ones who've been most entrusted. And yet, Lord, we are all uh, portraying a picture of Christ. And we want to portray a picture of Christ that is glorious and satisfying and sufficient to save and amazing. We want to show that your word is, is valuable by being here on time to hear it read. We want to show that you are a God who is to be worshiped in song. We want to be faithful to teach our children at our home. We want to love you with all of our heart, soul, and might. We want to have your word carved onto our hearts. We want it to be the overflow of our speech. We want to be faithful to train our children. We want to be proactive and not reactive. And Lord, we confess that we cannot do any of these things apart from your grace, Lord, but we have to do them. Lord, we know that our children uh, have, have built into them a, a rejection of you, that as Adam sinned, they've sinned, and that they can't escape it, and that they need your grace, Lord, but we want to paint a picture of you that we, we know we don't do idols here, Lord. Uh, we don't paint pictures of God, but yet, Lord, we know that we're painting a picture of you by our actions and by our affections and by the time that we spend talking about you and loving you and loving your people. And so, Lord, may we exalt a picture of you that is glorious and that our children would be drawn to who you are, to who your son is. We pray, Father, that your spirit would, would help us be faithful in parenting. And we pray, Father, for miracles in our kids' lives, Lord. Maybe even a miracle going on back there now, or a miracle that will happen today, that you save them. God, we cannot save them. We need you to save them. Please, Lord, save our little ones for your glory. Father, thank you for this morning. Help us all to be wise in how we can apply your word. Help us to be faithful in the stewardship that you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen.